what's up everybody welcome back don't ask us no questions about where we've been all right mind your business mind your business we we took um, some time in the spring to uh to work on our mental health make sure everything is solid and then that spread to summer where we needed a break yeah 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 yeah. like and then now we back again here we are this time we got a interview our first interview and this interview was actually really fun meaning we're going to start doing a lot more interviews for y'all so please enjoy this uh interview and welcome back (laughs) welcome back all right welcome everybody welcome back to the room 11 podcast my name is eric rush this is Josie. And today we have a really cool interview for you guys. This is our first interview and it is with, uh, her name is Dr. Johanny, but we call her Auntie Sophie as well. Um, Joanne, we'll give you a little introduction about her. Yes, we're very excited. A very special guest. Um, so Dr. Yohani is a professor and registered psychologist with a background in counseling, psychology, global mental health, elementary education, and experience in community psychology, program development, and community-based research. So welcome, Auntie Sophia slash Dr. Yohani. <laughs> Thank you. Really nice to be with you in this space today. 100%. 100%. So yeah, this um this podcast here is mainly about mental health and I guess minority cultures and environments as well, and as well as your your journey and your journey that got you into the mental health field and psychology. Because one thing we always talk about is, uh, especially in our culture, sometimes mental health is like growing up, it's not really a thing. You know, you can't go to your mom and be like, hey, mom, can I go to the psychologist real quick or do this? They'd be like, what do you mean? Like you're putting a business out there, you know, talk to me. I'm your psychologist. So it's or pray. In- yes. Take it to the Lord. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So things have changed. And I think a lot of that, um, is also to do with you, Auntie Sophia, having you in our community mm-hmm. and representing mental health, representing the, the profession, I think has, has done a lot Definitely. for the Tanzanian community. And, and something that, you know, we're always told, be a doctor, an engineer, or yeah, a nurse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a straight line. And so we're just so eager to hear your story um, and to share your experience. Yeah. I guess we'll start it off. And I, our first question is um, just a little bit about you. What's your background and where are you from? Okay. Well, um, for the sake of our audience, because you know me very well, um, I was born and raised in Tanzania, just like your parents. And uh, I'm a migrant to to Canada, came as as an adult in my uh, middle 20s. And um, I was, uh, yeah, I was born in the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania, and um, was raised um, mainly in Dar es Salaam by my Tanzanian father, Pare heritage, and an English mum. And I, um, and uh, I, uh, speaking about sort of professional and, and sort of the influences that we have with choosing a profession is surprisingly, I also was raised by, um, um, a medical family. My father's a pediatrician, was a pediatrician, retired now, and my mother was a pediatric nurse. And so absolutely there was an expectation that we go into medicine, not just uh, perhaps in the family implicitly, but also in the community. It was like, ah, oh, you look like you can do sciences really well. So you and your siblings, you should go into, into medicine. And um, I didn't. I, I chose a fairly different, even though I, it's generally within 
the allied health professions. Um, but, but I became very interested in, in sort of how people behave and how they think and how they respond to challenges, how they kind of enact their strengths. And uh, that took me down a completely different pathway than perhaps what was expected of me. Oh, that's interesting right there. Um, next question, Josh. Yeah, so, you know, you talked about, you know, the different paths. So can you can you speak a little bit more on, like, how you exactly picked it? Right? Like, just yeah. what influenced you starting in Tanzania um, and then bringing yourself, you know, immigrating to Canada to pursue it? Yes, so... Um, I am a, I'm an 80s person. I guess that's the, the, the years in which I sort of come into my adolescence. And, uh, and so as an 80s uh, yeah, ad uh, person, uh, kid or adolescent, um, but my coming of age unfortunately coincided with um, the emergence of the HIV um, epidemic at that time. And um, it's interesting, I've been reflecting a lot on that, given the fact that we've been in a, a pandemic right now and some of the parallels that I noticed, the emergence of an illness, um, fear and concern and not knowing how that would, um, how, you know, what was the source and how it, and it's transmitted. But what became really interesting in, in the early 80s and around the time that I was, of course, what was happening broad and I learned more about this later on, of course, I was a bit young, but once it was determined to be a sexually transmitted disease or a bloodborne, as well as being bloodborne, um, there was immediate concern for young people. And being a, an adolescent at that time, I think 14 or, or 15, there was a immediate concern for the need to kind of raise awareness and provide counseling and public uh, mental health promotion and promotion around, uh, around HIV and, and that. And at that time, um, as a high school student, we didn't have uh, school psychologists or school counselors. And my understanding is that, of course, uh, WHO that was sort of involved in, in, in the prevention work at that time would have used school counselors to provide that kind of awareness raising. Um, and, and for us, we had school nurses. And so they came in and provided that. And I think that really influenced me in terms of thinking about, first of all, fear around this illness, the impacts that it would have. And of course, very quickly, we, begin, we began to see the impacts in the community with the large number of losses and just the fear around that. And so I think that really tweaked my own interest in there's something, be, there's something in addition to physical health. There's the psychosocial components and, and people's behavior and emotions really matter in this. And so I, I was lucky in that um, I wasn't dissuaded by my parents not to pursue that. And in fact, they helped me find somebody who perhaps could tell me a little bit more about this profession called psychology or psychiatry at that time I was interested. And I happened to be connected to probably at that time was the only psychologist in the, in the, in the country and um, worked at our local medical school in Dar es Salaam and had a chance to work, uh, observe and shadow uh, Dr. Margaret Hogan at that time and the work that she was doing. And so I had a bit of exposure to psychology at that time. Yeah, so that was my interest and how, it, and how I 
you know, learned about the field. And I, and I still, of course, at that time, even when I began training in psychology in, in, in my undergrad, I don't think I knew enough just because it wasn't something that that I could see around me. But I had enough sense to know that this was really important and knowing something about mental health was going to be not only relevant at that time, but would be relevant going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you started, uh, when you started your... Uh, journey to start going into post-secondary and everything did you already have it in your mind that hey I'm going to go and be a psychologist were you already inspired to do that yes so that was yeah I was I think fairly unique in that I, that's exactly what I wanted to do as I'm going to become a psychologist I don't think I like I said I had an opportunity to shadow mm-hmm. a psychologist I watched them working with some uh, patients, um, doing some assessments, doing some counseling. I talked to them a bit about it. And um, Dr. Hogan at that time told me, oh, this is going to be uh, to train as a psychologist. You have to get your PhD. So it's going to take you many years in school. And I think that I didn't really let that particular piece of advice on information land in me. Otherwise, I would have probably given up. I didn't realize that it would actually take many years to, to actually get the full qualifications. Um, I just, um, I, uh, I, I jumped in, I would say, you know, out of curiosity and interest and a conviction that there was something really important about this field, perhaps without the full in-depth understanding of, of the field. Yeah. Yeah. So, so where did you go for your undergrad, your master's and your PhD, this long educational journey to get to where you are now? Yes. So I actually ended up, uh, training in the United States for my first degree. I got a scholarship and uh, was quite lucky to get a scholarship at Mount Holyoke College. And so I trained and and did, at that time I took three years. I did a three year undergrad degree in in elementary education and in psychology. And then um, later came to Canada um, as a graduate student to pursue master's and PhD. Okay, so that early education piece, did you initially think maybe you would go, you know, towards more counseling for children? Or was that just, was that a bit of a backup plan just in case? Or how did those two things connect? So very clearly, I think the one area that I was also interested in is I was interested in children and youth. And I think that perhaps was the influence of my parents, both being medical people with a focus on pediatrics. And so my training was actually very much focused on on children. And so my undergrad degree in psychology had a very strong emphasis on developmental psychology. And and that's why I also pursued elementary education to have that uh, access and and to children's worlds and and educational from the educational perspective as well, just because that was available to me in the department that I was located in. So my training and emphasis in my early years uh, in education, but also in my practice was very much as a child psychologist mm-hmm. and family therapist. And uh, and uh, as I, um, I think I, as I became a parent myself over the years, I started to say, oh, the parents have their own experiences and the adults in their lives really matter as well. And so I became interested, not just that emphasis on the family and, and the children and youth, but also the individual adults as well became an area of interest. And I also developed that as time went by. Yeah. 
Um, so do you want to speak more? Like, so you, you started with the children's psychology. So what was your, your defense thesis, like your PhD? What was your, your focus? And, and how did you get to that? How did you decide like, oh, you know what? This is what I'm uh, going to be my defense, uh, my PhD defense. Yes. This is what I'm running with. There's an interesting story there. So when I was uh, doing my undergraduate degree, I um, went back to Tanzania and I was working for a nonprofit organization that uh, focused on working with street-involved um, uh, street uh, youth in, in just outside Dar es Salaam. And so I ended up doing, like I was working there, like a, I guess it was informally as a counselor, as a teacher. And I also collected data for my honors thesis for my undergrad degree. And it ended up being a really interesting study on the life and experiences of Changudoa, or uh, which was a term, like a kind of a slang term used to dis to, to refer to street um, boys. They're mostly boys who I work with in, in Dar es Salaam. And that research really um, shaped, I think even till today, that experience and that research shaped a lot of my practice and, 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 um, and some of the values that I sort of transferred into my work. I learned um, at that time, and this is, this is, Quite so I'll date myself by saying, telling you the year. This is 94, <laughs> 1994. And at that time, um, I, 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 I learned um, about poverty, as well as uh, people's just challenges in the home, for example, um, a parent passing away, uh, a, a, a parent remarrying and the stepfather or stepmother not accepting them and experiencing abuse and eventually kind of being pushed out onto the street. Um, some of the young people who we were working with at that time, interestingly coincided because this is 1994, with a, with, was with, with the genocide that was happening against the Tutsi of Rwanda. And so we ended up getting a number of young people come escaping um, the genocide that was happening there. And we, we, we looked after them during that time. So I had an exposure to trauma. I don't think I've, at that time I fully understand in depth the field of traumatology was really in its early developing at that time. Um, but I was also exposed to what I saw as the incredible strength and, and this tenacity, this grit that uh, these young people had. And, and so there was right away this feeling that there's challenge, there's hardship, but there's also something that drives an individual to keep moving forward. And, um, and of course, now we use terms like resilience. I use, I, I've worked in the area of looking at hope and uh, strength, people's you know, strengths. And I've always maintained an interest in both of those and recognizing that we can have both. We can experience challenges, but we can also have strength while we are encountering challenges. It's not one or the other. And so that influenced my view as I move forward in my profession that I wasn't going to just focus on psychopathology, that that would be always be important to uphold and maintain an, a, a recognition of strengths that individuals or communities or families have despite challenges. And that difficulties were not necessarily just coming from inside a person, but external environmental factors played a role. For example, like I said, poverty. Um, so knowing the intersections of these, what we now call social determinants of health or mental health, 
are really important and the barriers that actually affect young people so that they might have difficulty not, not being having access to education, not having access to decent housing, mm. being on the streets, that that's going to impact mental health. It's not necessarily just the deficit that's inside of them. Yeah. You know, and so that's what I learned from the young people in 1994 working. That's what they taught me. And I and I think that really took me forward into the kind of work that I pursued. Fast forward in Alberta, Edmonton, um, when I was training as a psychologist, uh, very quickly, I became concerned that in the training, the, the, the environment that I was training in the, the program, um, it wasn't uh, reflecting very much the diversity of cultures, religion, the, the, the groups that I had been exposed to in my life, having kind of lived in a number of countries, that my background in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam being a very diverse uh, cultural sort of city that I was exposed to. And so I was quite concerned that I wanted to be exposed to people from different culture backgrounds so that I could be really and, de and declare myself, at that time I called it an international psychologist. I wanted to be an international <laughs> psychologist. And so um, I was told that if you want to have exposure to different cultures, go into the community, get to know the immigrant serving agencies. And in fact, around the time that I was starting to train here, um, there was a center for survivors of torture and trauma that had opened, which was a refugee serving program for individuals who, who were um, migrating to Canada as refugees and that there was a real focus on counseling and supporting them with adaptation in Canada. So having that early background and a bit of experience with homelessness, I felt like there would be some similarity there in, in working with individuals who've experienced trauma. And so I knocked on the door at the Center for Survivors of Torture and Trauma in Edmonton at that time and said, I'm a graduate student. I'm from Tanzania. I want to work with you know, people from different cultures. Can I be involved in whatever way that I can? And that began a long-term relationship with the community agencies and organizations that I still partner with and work with right now and have advocated alongside them to raise awareness around not just refugee mental health, but broadly speaking, immigrant mental health. And now we've moved even into area of, of mental health of black Canadians, for example. So that's the background. My doctoral dissertation was on um, adaptation of children and youth um, after war, after experiences of war. So it was very much looking at the experiences of refugee youth, but through the lens of hope. And so we're looking at what they talked about were things that had threatened their sense of hope, what gave them sense of hope, um, what was important in re re rebuilding a sense of hope as they adapted and adjusted to life in Canada. Oh, wow. Nice. That really like builds up. Like you see, you see the journey, you see yeah. each step just like building onto the other. And that's so inspiring, Auntie. That's that's beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask something. Um, uh, one thing I even wanted to touch on is just the real kind of the relationship with um, mental health and I guess the black community, um, migrant community. Mm -hmm. um, and you know how, for example, like we were saying earlier, we don't always, uh, mental health is not kind of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, one thing, for example, in my household, I've noticed um, um, my sister, my young sister, when she wanted to go and see somebody, my parents were up and willing and, you know, made plays and, uh, you know, 
found found somewhere to go for her to do this, you know. But recently, I noticed that my mom herself, she should actually also go and sometimes, you know, talk because she's because she deals with anxiety as well. You know, sometimes she deals with anxiety, and you know, she could also use, you know, uh, somebody to talk to as well, kind of thing. But in her mind, she's still like it's still blocked off in her mind, even though like if you know I go there or my someone in the family comes and said this back in the day to be like, no, just talk to me. But nowadays, she still be like, hey. All right, let's go. What what can we do? Um, who do you want to talk to? But in her mind, you know, if she going through something and wants to go and talk to, she will never do it because there's still like a mental block from it, you know. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, kind of what are some of the challenges that you've noticed in your work that um that the migrant community deals with in terms mm -hmm. of mental health kind of thing, and you know mm -hmm. what similarities and what interesting things have you noticed, for example, from culture to culture or yeah. country to country? You know, what's something that you've noticed? Mm hmm. Yes. So, oh, it's a, we could have a long conversation about this. It's very interesting. So, um, I I think one way to to begin with is sort of to kind of go backwards and um, and reflect back on 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 just the migration process and our exposure and experiences to issues around mental health or mental illness um, before we migrate to to Canada. And what that exposure might have been. So even recall when I said, um, I'd like to look for somebody who works in the area of psychology. The only person at that time who I was linked to worked in a psychiatric hospital with severe mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. And so it took me a while to kind of navigate and come to terms with the idea that actually mental health is broader than just speaking about mental illness. And that it encompasses just wellness generally, and uh, and um, and that sort of taking care of your anxiety, for example, which does not doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a disorder. I mean, it, it can go to the de degree of becoming a disorder, but um, experiencing anxiety of having some experiences where you feel sad and frustrated, and and then just talking to somebody to get some guidance on how to kind of develop some tools to cope with that. Is, is part of mental health and wellness. It's not necessarily a, a treatment to a, 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 an illness in some ways. Mm -hmm. Exercising and a variety of things that we do to, to, to just take care of ourselves on a daily basis. Um, so, um, so one of the things that people often, uh, that I work with, and, and we've actually done some research with colleagues at the University of Alberta. I worked alongside Dr. Bukola Salami, who does quite a bit of work in this area, Dr. Filomeno Keke. When we've talked to members of the African communities to reflect on what how they view mental health, um, what they've often said is when we've come to Canada or when we've left our countries of origin and start engaging in this idea of mental health, the focus often is on the language around, you know, what we early had associated this. It's a, it's a cognitive, it's a mental condition that you are referring to. So perhaps we're dealing with extreme uh, condition that we're dealing with mental illness or mental, like are you saying you have mental health challenges? I, one of our articles that we wrote recently, we said, if you say you have a mental health challenge, it means you're crazy. It means that you are, you know, obviously dealing with, with a disconnection from reality. And so that's part of the, the interpretation or perhaps the misunderstanding that has existed, I would say till fairly recently, but also, um, 
um, uh, perhaps the, the lack of kind of um, knowledge around sort of how mental health, even as a profession, has shifted over time from this emphasis on psychopathology to recognizing wellness in, in, in a more broad term. And so um, alongside that are just how we, um, different cultures have different ways of interpreting and, and thinking about wellness, as well as when there's an interference with one's wellness or mental ease or emotional ease um, to some form of distress, that there's different ways of interpreting that. So Joanne, for example, you said spiritual. Sometimes there could be a spiritual understanding of what's going on. And that's going to influence then what you see as the solution. So I might have a my, how I make sense of what's going on, my interpretation of, 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 of the challenge or the experience will also influence then what I see as the solution or what I see as how, and on, on top of that, who then is the right person to go to who has the skill, the knowledge or the expertise in this area. So challenges, for example, historically, broadly speaking, in, if I speak broadly, even in the Tanzanian culture, because of course we're many different ethnic groups within Tanzania, but broadly speaking, psychosocial issues, issues that relate to family matters, weren't necessarily things that you, you were sent to a, a psychologist or a doctor to, to, be, to resolve. Those were resolved in the community. So they were perceived to be interpersonal challenges, disharmony, that perhaps one has because of interpersonal difficulties and that then there are people who could resolve this within, often within families. So elders within the families who were respected, who then could be, could be approached and they would then come in and deal with the family issue. And, and we still use those mechanisms, even in our context, we go to each other's homes and we help each other resolve those issues. Um, and so the thought of let me go and see a professional who specializes in couples counseling or family therapy wouldn't be an immediate resolution for someone. They would think about what would we typically do. If it's a spiritual issue, then you, you can go for spiritual counseling to your pastor or to your imam, you, your faith leader, and they will guide that. If it was a spiritual issue in the, in, in the African kind of indigenous uh, uh, religious views, then you'd go a traditional healer mm. who has knowledge of the spirit world, the ancestors, and they can facilitate the ceremonies that support, again, the restoration of harmony, whether it's within between you and the spirit world, you and the ancestor world, or you and your family or your community. So who resolves that also really mattered, matters. And so, um, so I always look at sort of the issue of mental health and how our community responds to mental health from both perspectives, that there's this culture, this, this context that we're in that has a view of mental health and wellness that we're all now um, influenced by. And then there's a different, uh, our own sort of culture views and values and how we view that. And in my work as somebody who's really interested in multicultural counseling, who wants to respect and kind of walk that balance between respecting culture and, and, and people's worldviews, but also recognizing that we live in a context and environment that there are also other ways of looking at that. And um, for those of uh, members of our community who are born and raised here, which would be, you know, 
you or, or 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 came as a young child, you know, as like you, Eric, that you are very much influenced by this environment as well. And might not have that kind of knowledge of the indigenous African worldview and 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 that particular spiritual kind of um interpretation. And so you and so I and so we recognize that some of the options and pathways that are available here are more natural for you to pursue. And that um, community members who might have followed more traditional pathways may prefer some of what they've had exposure to. But at the same time, I'm committed to people knowing that there's a variety of options that are available for them. And that um, knowing something about mental health and wellness and different ways that you can do, for example, mindfulness meditation, there's a lot of evidence now that it works really well. It helps us resolve anxiety. It helps us deal with some of the modern kind of challenges that we encounter right now in our lives right now. So Eric, how's that? Did that oh, answer that some questions? Perfect. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. No, so really I, it's not sort of an either or. I see it as a sort of a navigation of, of and, and spending time really listening and then understanding each other because we're dealing with sort of cultural differences as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From one generation to the next, eh? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, sure. Now that resonates so much with me because there's also this really strong perception. Um, like I've heard my mother say, like, oh, you know, it's just white people. Like mental health, white people have so much mental health problems. You know, they don't talk to their neighbors, they don't talk to their mother for five years. Yeah, they yeah. don't like they don't know community. That's why they all have mental, you know, and just and and understanding, you know, you're just talking about that cultural context. Like, yes, so my mom saw that, you know, Africans might not have mental health issues because yeah. we have community, because yeah. we can go, you know, talk to our families or our neighbors yeah. or our pastors. But yeah. also understanding now, like, you know, there is there is nuances to that. There are yeah. differences and, and there are areas that, you know, going to your community isn't the yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so sometimes so, you need to step away or and, uh, and speak elsewhere. And yeah, but you know, I love what you just brought up there about the resources that exist within the community. And your mom was right about some things there that um, that uh, we know that community support, like there are certain things that we know help to support resilience and, and prevent sort of the development of more severe mental health challenges. And it is, a lot of it actually, um, collectivist cultures have that built in naturally for them. And that's why they didn't have to go out and find a professional or somebody who went off and trained, you know, in this way, because um, collectivism, collective uh, communities um, naturally had many inbuilt natural supports. Mm. And so when your mom says that, yeah, they, they, they're disconnected, they, they said that, in, that highly individualistic um, orientation to life, can um, prevent or, or limit having access to what would be often a natural support systems. That you're having a hard day and uh, you, you can go and vent with some, to someone and know, knowing that they'll, that then that at the end of the day you go home and you feel good because you had a chance to release that. Whereas keeping it coming home and keeping it to yourself, we know that that doesn't really you know, resolve some of the challenges. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And so I guess now looking at more of like the Canadian culture, um, you know, 
having access to mental health is not cheap. <laughs> you know, you, we understand you work very hard to get to your profession. You deserve your dollars, auntie, like, you know, you deserve your pay, but it's not, it's not usually very accessible. And so has there been more conversation within the psychologist community or just even the organizations that you work with on getting, you know, more immigrants, people of color, people of low income, getting access to other options? Yeah. Like, I don't think we've ever talked, like Eric and I've talked about meditation, but that's only because of this, the circles that we've been able to access, the people we've been able to cross. But how do we get, you know, these other options out there to other communities? And also with that, um, with that, what improvements um, are you seeing um, through it, you know, in terms of um, we're trying to get more access to the community and everything, but also in, in the time that you've been working in the field, mm -hmm. what improvements yeah. have you been seeing that's really um, inspiring you, you know, and encouraging you in the trajectory of the field and mental health and um, mm -hmm. your place in it kind of thing? Yeah, so so I've been in this field um, for 25 years now. So of course that's enough time to kind of see mm -hmm. some of the changes that have happened. and uh, And, uh, I remember being involved in projects or, or uh, delivering projects where there was a lot of work done to sort of reach out to people in community. Um, years ago, I was involved in a project in which we 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 developed a um, a mechanism within our organization that was brand new for them. They didn't know that was something that they hadn't um, had experience with before, but we said, you know, if you want to reach people, you have to be willing to actually go to their homes mm -hmm. and provide counseling in their homes. And, um, and I'd had that experience through with, uh, with, with an organization that was providing that kind of outreach, but a mainstream organization that hadn't, that was quite new for them to realize that actually, if you want to reach people who are typically difficult to reach, um, fairly hidden or, or might be concerned to kind of be out or seen that they're accessing services. And at that type, the, but the specific work I was doing actually, um, one had to be quite careful not to be kind of associated with that. It obviously was, was survivors of sexual violence. And so going to a sexual um, assault support center was very hard for members of our community. And so the work that we did was actually arrange and, and say, where do you feel safest for you to meet with me? And some people said, meet me in my home, meet me in my coffee shop, meet me, uh, meet me at, at school. Mm -hmm. and, and so that kind of outreach is, is, was really helpful, I think, and, and that slowly brings sort of awareness of the kind of work that we do. I remember early on even said not wanting to kind of tell people that I'm a psychologist or or you're a psychiatrist because that might scare people away. And so kind of describing what you do in more descriptive terms. I'm I here, I support, I don't provide medicine, but what we know is that there's relief in, in being able to talk about what's going on and having somebody to support you through your journey. And so um, we've tried many different types of ways just to, to reach people. Um, a lot of education and awareness raising in communities and at times being told that's not an issue we don't have a concern you know <laughs> right. and so finding ways of of bringing attention to wellness in very creative ways like uh, uh, running groups for women um, and support groups where that's again built building on our existing kind of natural um, um collectivist sort of mechanisms that groups, people getting together, spending time together, 
involves naturally wellness. We get together, we sing, we dance, we eat, we talk. If somebody's mourning uh, loss, there's support built in there. Um, and then I sort of ran groups where we, we develop very similar mechanisms, but then within that, bringing up, you know, in, in very gentle ways, um, uh, ways of thinking about mental health. So for example, I was once uh, running a group for women that um, the people who knew the women knew that they were struggling with quite a bit of depression. But if I came in and just said, I'm going to teach you about depression, and this is what the Diagnostical Manual of Mental Disorders says about depression, that's not going to re resonate with, with people. And so as we did a variety of different things in the group, we had somebody used to come in and do yoga. And people felt a lot of relief stretching and 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 feel you know and um, in doing some exercise, and then um, I remember once in introducing the idea of seasons, and we were moving from the fall to winter season, and as we were transitioning, everyone in the group, including myself, had lived in another country where we didn't have the same kind of strong transitions from warm weather to extremely cold weather. And we talked about how that impacted us mm -hmm. and how having to be indoors, not having, not feeling, you know, feeling comfortable to go out, it's cold, it's dark, and how people, it shifted and affected their mood. So naturally people talked about the changes in, in their mood and, and how that affected them. And we could bring in some, some then I could bring in, um, uh, uh, I could bring in um, some language around that, that actually in the North here, that definitely we notice a change in mood as we move more indoors and we have less access to light and, and the need to kind of do some things to take care of yourself within that. And then naturally, because we were talking about changing seasons, because everyone in that group had also experienced war and migration and displacement and loss, I could bring in, and life also has seasons. And there are different chapters in your life where you experience different things that happen to you. And with those changes, you experience shifts in your mood and how you feel about yourself and you feel about the world and, and how you feel about others around you. And everyone could very naturally open up and talk about what was going on and how they experienced shifting life seasons for themselves. So I have found that those were some ways of that, that, that were more natural um, to have conversations about wellness and well-being without necessarily um, imposing a, a preconceived sort of version that might not fit necessarily for the different cultural groups that I've worked with. But what I see over time, now talking about the changes, what I'm seeing right now is, um, of course, my early work was very much, and a lot of my work has been with first generation, like myself, those of us who've arrived, you know, in, in Canada, and we're having to kind of navigate these, these culture shifts and thinking and having to adapt to living in a different environment and, and adapting how we even think about our health and wellness. Um, and, and that's not easy. Change is not easy, you know. But what I'm seeing with, and I've also worked with the children and, and the first generation coming at his young age, but then those who are second generation. And, and now we're starting to see third in our community. I think we have third generation and maybe even fourth coming up, you know, babies, you know, so we're growing as a community as well. But what um, I've observed is, of course, those of you who've been raised in the Canadian context are more acculturated. 
to this environment, are more comfortable with open conversations about mental health and wellness. And so um, what we're seeing is that, yeah, young people are more comfortable in some ways, and it also in some other ways, perhaps depending on the family cult environment and how traditional perhaps they are, that might not be, maybe they, they, they have to navigate sort of breaking through perhaps some of the ways in which uh, they were perhaps raised to, like Eric had said, you know, being raised perhaps that you don't share and talk about what's going on. But there's increased, I think, general awakening to the importance of mental health and wellness, not just in Canada, but globally. Mm -hmm. And for example, I'm aware of young psychologists and mental health professionals in Tanzania who are doing webinars and raising awareness around mental health and wellness in Dar es Salaam, in the light, which is of course a, a metropolitan city, but there's more of that happening there. Social media has exposed us, I think, to many stories and, and you know, um, around well-known people who are opening up about their experiences and struggles with mental health. And I think all of that is contributing to a more, I would say, normalization, and hopefully in the process of that destigmatizing um, and mental mental health challenges. And so there's more openness. It's, it seems to be an easier kind of, I wouldn't say we're all there yet, but it's not as difficult as, you know, the early work of knocking on the doors and coming up with very creative ways of reaching out and, and providing reach outreach. Um, with increasing awareness, some of the underlying issues that also existed, not necessarily just people's accessing services, but the nature of our services, we have to examine that. We've got work to do. I think in my profession and anyone who does work in mental health, we have to examine our practices and accessibility of our practices. Um, the practices have to think more about how do you adapt to people of different culture backgrounds? Mm. How do we adapt to, to services that have not been accessible because of the cost of the services? Where the services take place? Members, some members of our community are not comfortable going to see somebody in a medical institution, but they might be more comfortable to put in community settings. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, they're continuing to do outreach and reaching people in their homes for using more styles that reflect cultural practices of coming into the home and providing support at that level. And so all of those, are, I think, are still areas that we have to improve upon, we have to examine. And um, the biggest issue, uh, if I speak just to uh, Alberta, is the fact that uh, psychological services are not covered by Alberta Health, uh, Alberta Healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so wouldn't it be nice if, you know, similar how we can access a medical doctor, you can go to see a nurse, that you should be able to see a mental health practitioner. We actually do have them, um, but it's not cutting across all professions. Like psychologists are not, unless they work for um, health services, clinical social workers, unless they work for that institution. But if people are in private practice in the same way physicians are, you can't access those individuals who are in private practice unless your, 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 your place of employment has insurance that would cover that. 
So these are sort of some of the, the barriers in terms of the um, members of the community who don't have access to insurance to pay for somebody who's in private practice having options. And it's really about the options because there have always been organizations that provide services at low cost or no cost. We call it sliding scale, you know, so we have immigrant serving agencies that where I started working at, it's always been free. But members of our community want options as well. And they'd like to be able to look at a list of people and see, see that I can afford to go to this person because they have a particular skill set over another person. I'd like to pursue somebody because they actually speak my language. Mm. They're from a same geographical region that I'd like to feel comfortable working with somebody from that area. And so having those options is really what we, we need to examine further. Yeah. So, you know, you talked a lot about like that intersectionality piece and needing to grow the psychologist or therapist uh, community and so that people had more options and choices to access and I, I just resonated with that so much because I I was seeing someone previously and first of all he would just give me straight advice on what to do which I thought I thought psychologists weren't supposed to do yeah. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to tell me exactly what to do I thought it was you know yeah. guide me yeah, to yeah. get yeah. my decision um, but it was very evident that they were just missing that cultural context, you know, because I was like, oh, I don't know if I should do this or this. And he's like, well, why don't you just do it? And I'm like, well, I'm African, I'm immigrants. Yeah. I like there's just so much of these elements on that I can't yeah. just, you know, go forward with, you know, the decision that I want was trying to make. And yeah. so, yeah, I just like I know obviously a lot of your background is around that intersectionality, but I was wondering if you could just talk just a little bit more about like why that is so important and and how we can you know um, encourage that more and, and and also like promote it in the sense that I think you know when we go see a doctor or a dentist generally we we don't need that piece I mean now more than ever I know with like you know black women health especially with like maternity and everything it's it's important to have you know a doctor that understands um, some of the challenges but generally you know you you get an Asian doctor or a white doctor or, or a white dentist or you know and it just it doesn't factor in but how much it's so important within this yeah. field of your mental health to have someone yeah. that resonates and that can communicate and understands that cultural context that mm -hmm. you just can't get in other medical fields that are essential yeah and and, and I, I personally I think that it should be in every field anytime you have contact human to human contact ideally that uh, all our professionals who work with uh, in the human services, whether it's medicine or social services, that they would have um, uh, understanding of, of uh, the importance of, of an awareness around culture and, and the context of people's lives. And, and by culture, broadly speaking, um, not just as a race and ethnicity, but to sexual orientation, socioeconomic you know, status, um, people's, um, immigrant status, you know, all of those are, are the intersections of that, but also on their own are so incredibly important in shaping who we are. Mm -hmm. And so um, a, 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 a culturally sensitive uh, professional is, um, is, is one who, who has sort of knowledge, um, meaning that they have some knowledge about the groups that they work with. Mm -hmm. 
And in Canada, um, it means a multicultural society that we live in that you're, you can't assume that everyone's going to fit a particular box that doesn't exist anymore. Um, our latest and largest and fastest growing immigrant population are Africans and Middle Eastern. Um, 50, 60 years, 70 years ago, you know, it was ma ma mainly from the UK and the USA and that. And so things have shifted and we can't, uh, we, we can't be behind that. In, by the year 2030, um, one in four or, uh, Canadians will be foreign born. And so that's a, that's that's a reality of our environment. So, personally, I uh, my view is that it's it's important for for everyone, whether it's the dentist, whether it's you know, that that really makes for a more um, just society. You know, if people um, are aware and have that knowledge, but also they have their own awareness in how they are responding, how they are interacting, their biases. Um, that they, they work towards enhancing their own awareness so that they can overcome those unconscious biases that result in microaggressions that interfere with interpersonal relationships and services that are provided. So in my profession, we talk about the importance of that knowledge, uh, about the different cultural groups that you work with, and striving to learn. It doesn't mean that you're going to be an expert on everyone's culture. I'm from Tanzania. I can't claim that I'm an expert from all, of, of all the different ethnic groups. But I, I strive to have an attitude of openness to learn, a willingness to learn, and to learn by exposing myself to different experiences and groups and, and learning, reading, and, and, and asking the questions, and being humble and open with my clients and the people that I work with, whether it's my students, so that I can, that I can learn from them. And so, that knowledge is really important. My own awareness and again, my own striving to continue to be open and humble that I will make mistakes, that I will, that, that I need to, to learn. And then the skills that go with that. So the knowledge, awareness and skills. And, and, and so the cultural competencies that uh, we talk about are very much now becoming increasingly understood as, as not just tools that you then see somebody they look like they're black so I'm going to kind of throw this in that doesn't work as well because you've probably experienced that <laughs> somebody's trying really hard yeah and it just doesn't it it, do, it doesn't feel authentic does it right whereas somebody who comes from an, an attitude of cultural humility my goodness you encounter a professional who comes from there right away you notice the difference mm and you go like this person they might be making some mistakes but i i can forgive them right now because i can see their humility and that they're willing to learn you know um and 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 and, and, and that openness and curiosity to continue to strive for our growth our own growth and development so um i think uh this is really important i think from the side of, of for, for those of myself who are in the these the profession of mental health because we interact with people, because we are deeply sort of working at a fairly intimate level with people, that there are so many more um, immediate um, um, risks of harming the individual that we're working with. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have to be extremely mindful about that. And, and sensitivity to their, their like, well, I say culture and context because it's sort of learning something about the environment that they grew up with and how they interpret and experience that. 
recognizing that there's the group kind of that they belong to, or the groups they belong to, the different identities they associate with, and then there's their own personal interpretation of what that experience might be like. So I might be, um, uh, I, I, I might be, um, uh, I, I might be, for example, uh, um, um, I'm just trying to think of like, I might be somebody who is uh, African Tanzanian and I might be religious and my religion is Islam. And, and yet I might have some practices that are very individual to me that might not, but might go against my own religion. For example, I actually might eat pork. Right. And somehow I've made a decision that that's okay for me. And so that's a unique kind of interpretation that often professionals have to be sensitive to as well, rather than assuming. Mm. But they also have to have a knowledge that an individual who is Muslim and, and know something about that religion and, and being mindful and sensitive to what that is like for that individual that they support. Yeah. And, um, and, I, I, and so, yeah, so, so I, I increasingly talk to my students who I'm training um, about the importance of cultural humility. It's not just about sensitivity, competence, but it's an attitude as well. Mm. And having that attitude is how we're going to combat anti-Black racism. And, you know, the microaggressions then where that can be enacted on an individual level and, and the collective sort of uh, um, attitudes that are needed to begin to dismantle systemic, you know, forms of racism and injustice. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, I really like that word cultural uh, humility. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of this um, one quick story. I had a friend who she, she's white. She's from like... Um, Winnipeg or Saskatchewan or stuff like that, one of these small towns, right? But her um, her kid is black, youngest kid's black, um, mm -hmm. and her kid started asking her questions about his identity, kind of thing, yes. right? And she, you know, she noticed that hey, there's some questions that I can't answer, you know, I, I didn't experience, you know, that I just can't answer, you know. And yeah. I guess she was even smart enough and um, I guess willing enough to go and try to find somebody to. Um, Yes. who can answer these questions better for him kind of thing you know yes. the thing is the first person she went to she was complaining you know because she was asking me some questions mm -hmm. right because she was looking for i guess also just um because I'm, I'm she's also a friend of mine you know great friend yeah. I, I help her out whenever she asks me to advice you know we're, we're good friends so she was also asking me um asking me questions saying that hey um some of the things that my son's coming back home and telling me he's seeming like he is um like he doesn't feel understood. He's seeming more confused, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's being put down or what, or, you know, whatever. Like she also noticed that, hey, mm -hmm. um, the psychologist that I'm taking is not culturally, um, what is mm -hmm. the word we use? Culturally. Sensitive. Yeah, it's not culturally yes, sensitive yes, to yes. my, yeah, essentially conscious and sensitive to my son's unique culture, you mm -hmm. know? And, you know, she's right now working on finding somebody who's, you know, I guess essentially culture uh, sensitive and yes. and kind of understand his unique culture kind of thing. So yes. that's very interesting right there. And I, that was one of the first times I thought of it. But yeah, that's very interesting taking yeah. uh, a way we can really approach this. Yeah, and there's a mom, a mother who really is sort of reflecting and and thinking and, and listening to her son, mm -hmm. and and beginning to kind of go, okay, there's limitations of what I can. I can't assume and impose everything of mine on them that they're, that they're going to have other experiences. And where do I begin to access 
resources and and I and that's the knowledge piece that I was saying that you might need to kind of connect with people that you know and can ask questions and explore and learn until you begin to kind of land on on what's more an appropriate um, response to your for your child for example so with that said um what are some of the resources that you come across um, throughout the city, maybe throughout Canada or even Tanzania or elsewhere that you've uh, really, uh, you know, that you've really liked, that you've worked with, that you think they're really pushing the, um, the, um, the advancement of mental health and the mental well-being of, you know, everybody here? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I won't go internationally because, it, they, yeah. you know, that will take us down a whole other route. Sure. But I would talk more locally to begin with locally because, uh, um, and, and some of what is local is actually national as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's um, in terms of beginning with resources to, to know that, you know, that that uh, Alberta Health Services does have, it's not that they don't, that they do have um, um, services uh, for mental health. We have child and adolescent intake services around mental health as well as adult intake services. And so we have an access sort of 24 seven um, phone line that we can contact and 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 begin a process of enrolling um into accessing services that would be free of charge that as 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 a as a person who is a resident in alberta so that's something to to be aware of um i'm not sure if i need to give you the numbers i think people when they hear this they can look this up yes alberta health services access 24 7 adult intake services as well as child and adolescent intake services um, we also have an organization called Child and Adolescent Family Mental Health that really focuses on access to mental health services for children and adolescents, including those under the age of five. So these are sort of resources that are available that are sort of what we call, from a community perspective, mainstream. Um, we also have a Psychologists Association of Alberta. They have a special line for referral services. And so if you, if for example, you're looking specifically if somebody who's put down an area of interest and expertise would be working with, let's say black mental health, you can check to see if there's any individual who says that that's an area that I would work in or dealing with um, issues around LGBTQ, the mental health and wellbeing of LGBTQ community members, or somebody who specializes in trauma, for example, the referral line allows you to kind of find that very specific information. There are also then um, sort of broad areas that are providing uh, agencies and organizations that provide what I mentioned earlier as low or no cost counseling. So um, immediately from a community point of view and and within the, um, for example, the conversation we've had today was around immigrant, refugee, Black, you know, community members. Um, the Edmonton Mennonite Center for Newcomers has a health and well-being services. Mm. I would say excellent. You've got a large team of mental health practitioners. It's completely low cost. You just have to be a permanent resident um, to access those services. Multilingual too. Um, of the 15 staff there, you'll find somebody who speaks at least one of our languages. And if they don't, they have access to interpreters or cultural brokers who then provide that interpretation service. So language shouldn't be a barrier. And their model of practice allows outreach into schools, into homes as needed just to reduce those barriers. Another organization, the Multicultural Health Brokers Cooperative also operates on a similar model 
of accessing or providing services, and often in collaboration with a mental health team at, at the Mennonite Center to provide, again, very culturally based, culturally sensitive, real deep understanding of migration as well as integration. Um, specific to our um, uh, Black community members, we have a recent uh, fantastic resource through the Africa Center. And uh, the Africa Center has collaborated with Alberta Black Therapist Network, and they provide mental health services. So these are individuals who are enrolled and they have a partnership in that they, they, will, they will provide services via Africa Center. But these individuals may also have their own private practice. Some of them are clinical social workers. Some of them are uh, psychologists and may be accessed through some of these other avenues. So this is just um, a referral. For youth, um, there is uh, some other ways of accessing services that would be also free. So the Black Youth Helpline is an, a national level um, helpline for young people to call and have an opportunity to talk to somebody who would provide what I would say is supportive counseling as well as resources. That's one way. Uh, mental health, children's mental health line is another one or kids helpline. And these are again, some broad sort of mainstream services that young people can contact and access service uh, and access services. There are a number of other organizations that provide low cost services. The Family Center in Edmonton, again, emphasis on families. Um, but also individual uh, individuals, you can provide services, the Catholic social services. The Catholic social services also has a cross-cultural counseling team. So that's another place where they would provide multicultural counseling services. Um, there are, there's Jewish family services and cornerstone counseling services. These, you would think that cornerstone Christian counseling services, although it seems to be faith-based by, by the name, that they're using, they're actually, you, you don't have to be Jewish or Christian to access services there. Um, uh, IFSA, Islamic Family Services um, uh, Association in Edmonton also provides mental health services. And there are people there who specialize and focus on faith-based as well. So if you have Islam, is, Islam is your faith, then you'll have individuals who are very sensitive and proficient in providing um, services to individuals of that faith background as well, but you don't have to be Muslim to access services then. So for me, having come from my beginnings, my humble beginnings, if you remember where I was knocking on the door saying, where do we actually, where do I provide, where do I learn? Mm -hmm. And at that time it was one organization with one psychologist providing services through the Center for Survivors of Torture and Trauma and myself and a few other people came on as volunteers to all these different places that I've shared with you where there's a sensitivity, some of them very specifically focusing on the cultural context of immigrants, refugees, members of uh, ethnic minority or racial minority groups like black community. You can see where how much we've grown. Yeah. And this is what excites me. And it's, what also excites me is just the number of people out there who are excited about this profession, who are providing these services. Um, and um, the individuals like, for example, who I mentor who are coming up in their professions and how passionate they are um, for the work that they do. So, so for me, it's very satisfying to see that. I still, and I, of course I've mentioned about, I mentioned where we still have work to go. 
Um, we, um, I, I think that, for example, one population that is underserved that we will need to think about and pay attention to are actually where I'm going, <laughs> which is seniors. Right. <laughs> you know, meaning where I'm going my years, you know, like oh, in the no next, way. you know, <laughs> 10, you know, no, next few no. decades, you guys are going to be looking after no, me and your no. parents as staying young forever. You'll be fine. <laughs> sensitive to us who are, who are, who came as immigrants who are now aging in this culture, in this context, and what are the unique mental health needs of that we have? And I think that that's a really important consideration for us, that I know where the youth are really important and children and families, but our seniors are, are also, and elders are uh, is an area that we also need to start looking at now. And mm -hmm. so that maybe on that note, that's where I'll end. That's great. Yeah. No, those yeah, are tons you. of resources. Um, before you leave, I want to, there's one story time I have. Joanne was there in this story. <laughs> you were there. But I always say that, um, well, for one, you're the one who inspired, you know, with me and I read them to even other, as well as my dad to kind of like um, look into psychology and sociology and the way, you know, things, uh, the way people are affected by things and, you know, the mental space kind of thing. And you're the one who showed me that meditation is real. All right. Ah, I always remind me. Yes, I always knew about meditation, this and that, but I was like, ah, yeah, right. You know, this and that. And I think we were at your place and we were talking about hypnotizing. Yes. Right? And you were like, um, no, I can't hypnotize people. I'm like, no, I can't be hypnotized, you know? <laughs> and you took me through this practice, but it was really like a meditation practice, right? Yes. But you told me to lay down. You've spoken like this soothing voice and you told me it was like a guided meditation, basically. And then she counted down. And like, I remember as she's counting down 10, you're getting, you know, you're getting in sleep, you're relaxing, nine, eight. And like at 10 and nine and eight, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm here. You seven, six, five comes. I'm like, wait, something's happening here, you know? And I swear to this day, I always remember when you said one, you counted down when you said one, I felt like, I felt like myself drop into like oh. peace. Like when you got to one, I guess I was really yeah. into it. But yeah. two, one, when you said one, I yeah. literally felt, I remember I got up, I was like, Joanne didn't believe me. She's like, no. yeah, right. No. Yeah, you were like, there, no. I think, Joanne, as well. <laughs> Not that I questioned your, your, your abilities, Andy. Yeah. I just knew Eric was yeah. a jokester. <laughs> And I just, I just didn't trust him. Yeah. So I was like, no, you're lying. He was chilled and relaxed. No, when you got to one, I felt it. And that was the first time I felt that, oh, wait, there is some, um, there is something to this meditation thing that they're talking yeah. about. There is something yeah. to this. Um, um, that our minds, our earlier. own minds actually have the ability to help us and go into a different state that mm. is moving towards wellness or like, for yeah. example, experience, I guess, some kind of relaxation and, and it came from you, yeah, which is yeah. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just a facilitator. You yeah. Know? No, you showed me yeah. it was real. You showed me it was real, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, with that said, thank you for joining us. This is definitely, this is our first interview and our favorite episode right yeah, now. So far. Hands down. Definitely. Yeah. So appreciate you. You are coming. so welcome. You're so welcome and and I, I'm I'm really excited for, for what you do and, and both of you are upstanding, you know, members of the community. And this is great with what you're doing. And I wish you all the best in the next podcast. Awesome. Yeah, thank Thanks you, a lot. Have a good one. Good luck with Take all care. the rest of your work. Thank you. Kwaheri. Kwaheri. Kwaheri.
So that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just hearing her talk just soothes me, you know? Yeah. I was even... like, mm-hmm. I, I was like, did we just get a free therapy session? Because that's mm-hmm. how I feel. I feel relaxed. Mm-hmm. I feel my anxiety reduced. I feel enlightened. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. I'm so happy. Yeah. That's definitely awesome. interview. I love Auntie Sophia. Um, and yeah, even always growing up, Auntie Sophia's house, Auntie Sophia's house and like her presence always just brings peace, you know, peace. like she always has this, her whole aura is just like mm. peace. But when you're around her, you want to calm down. You want to just like sit and settle. So I'm happy that you guys got to, um, uh, got, got to see that, you know, and that's Auntie Sophia. That's her energy. That's her, her mind. And, you know, she's been a part of our, like I said, she's our lives, a part of our yeah. lives for, you know, for probably as long as, uh, you know, as long as since I've been here kind of thing. So. I wanted to ask if she, um, like what class she's teaching. I'm like, yeah, do you I'm take drop-ins? Yeah, can I just walk in? Hop in one of those classes for real, for <laughs> Can real. I just stroll in? Mm-hmm, definitely. Can I, can I hop into your Zoom class? Yeah. Yeah, no, she's awesome. And yeah, just so honored that she took the time to do that. Because obviously, sis is booked and busy. So, sure. so, so, so grateful. Um, but you and I got to get back to business. So... Yep. Also, if there's any future interviews you guys want to hear from us, mm-hmm. if there's um, anybody you guys want us to interview in Edmonton or wherever, let us know. We'll see if we can make that play, and we'll make it happen. We're back in action, y'all. We're back in action. Let's get it. <laughs>